I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. Uh, I am Ed Malian, and it is another Monday, and that means it's another day of dissecting the weekend's action, although this week uh, we've got a full midweek schedule, so uh, we'll probably try and do a little bit of preview as well. Obviously, as ever, it would be incredibly dull if it was just me on my own, so I've got uh, two Jacks with me today. I've got uh, the Pride of Wales, Jack Austin, to my left. Hello, Jack. Hello, Ed. And to my right, I've got uh, Jack Pitbrook, freshly returned from Huddersfield. Jack. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? I am uh, dreadful, actually. I'm glad you asked. Uh, Incredibly tired, one hour sleep. But uh, that doesn't matter because, uh, you know, I'm here for the, the love of the game. And uh, the game that you saw yesterday is what we're going to start off with, actually, because uh, I think it's interesting um, that Huddersfield, a bit of a... Uh, actually, Brighton and Huddersfield, the, the two teams, two of the teams got promoted last season, very mid-table, um, looking kind of safe at the moment compared to some of the, the awful teams at the bottom, which we'll get to later. So uh, you, you tracked all the way up to Huddersfield. Um, first of all, your impressions of, of the Pride of Yorkshire. Really, really impressed. Um, I think that was the first time I've seen them play this year, but they were very good. They, Although they've had success under David Wagner playing sort of pressing football high up the pitch, here they played um, They played very, very deep, very compact. Uh, they made it. They made it as hard for City to break through them as any other team has done this season. You know, it was harder for City to find space, and I think it was when City went to Chelsea, for example. Um, they, you know, City couldn't get around the back because they were playing very deep. City couldn't get when City tried to go down the sides and put crosses in. They packed the box, and there was always someone in the way. Uh, when City tried to kind of carve open some space in the middle for De Bruyne to shoot from twenty yards, Huddersfield squeezed that too. Um, and City, I mean, of course, City are going to create chances, but I don't think they created that many clear-cut chances compared to what you'd usually expect. Uh, and even the two goals they did score were quite fortunate. Uh, in the, first, the first goal was a penalty, which you know could have gone either way. And the second goal kind of bounced off Raheem Sterling's stomach and flew up into the net. Um, and actually, I think City were probably created more in the first half than the second half, where they got drawn into this physical scrap with Huddersfield um, and kind of forgot to play their football. So I was really, really impressed with Huddersfield. I know they didn't, you know, they came away with nothing, but I think they probably played at least as well as they did as when they beat Manchester United at the John Smith Stadium a month ago. Did anyone ask uh, Wagner if he'd been talking to Klopp for any advice? Obviously, Klopp are uh, fairly familiar with Guardiola from their time in Germany. No, nobody did ask him that, but he did. Um, Guardiola himself made the point that. Huddersfield played very differently from how you would normally expect them to play, or how they have often played. I mean, even their credit, that right? Yeah, even when they played against City last year, Huddersfield were very aggressive. Whereas this time, they'd, um, you know, they played in a much deeper way, reliant on counter attacks and set pieces and long balls to to Depoitre, who I thought was really impressive up front, gave company a really difficult time uh, and nearly got in once or twice. Um, and it was, you know, it's t- it's testament really to how good a job Wagner has done because there's no 
I think they must be the the worst squad in the Premier League. Not you know not a badly constructed squad, talent, but yeah. just in terms of the level of player that they have. Uh, even you know even more so than Brighton or Burnley. Um, and yet the fact that they're still you know just about keeping their heads above water and have got a decent chance of staying up shows what Wagner has done with the resources that he has. Because these are you know this is more or less a team that finished fourth in the Championship last year. And therefore suggests that you know he is he is a very serious coach. Looking at the table now, they're eleventh, fifteen points, so they're five points clear of of the relegation zone as things stand, uh, and and they're looking pretty good. I, I do think it's to their credit any team that that can adapt their style to you know you, you can't arrogantly go into a game against possibly the best Premier League team we've seen for five, six, seven, eight, nine years, and decide that you're going to still play the same way. That's what Alan Pardew would do. Uh, you need to at some point decide that you know we, we need to adapt and what I've seen of David Wagner so far very impressive as I say I mean there were teams that considered trying to lure him away in the summer I think West Ham's the most obvious one and they didn't and I think he's really proven his, his pedigree this season it'd be interesting to see you know, it's a shame to always say this but how long he stays there um, anything else to note about Manchester City? I mean, we, every week we just seem to say how good they are. So, anything else? Well, yeah. I mean, it was interesting in the sense that this wasn't a game where they could do exactly what they wanted to do. They didn't run through them and score five or six goals. But Guardiola was actually delighted with this afterwards. And I think that's because there's been this view amongst some of the City players that things have been a bit too easy for them. And they've wanted narrower, tighter games just, just to kind of wake them back up again. You know, so I know that they were pleased when they only beat Shakhtar Donetsk 2-0 in the Champions League. Or even after the Arsenal game, which they won 3-1 about a month ago, some of them thought that it would have been better off if they'd only won 1-0. Because um, just to remind the players, they've got to switch on. And Pep said this afterwards. He says, you know, winning 5 or 6-0 isn't the reality of football. And you do need to live through situations like this. You do need to suffer just to uh, just, just to keep you on your toes. And so, while I don't think City were very good yesterday, like it was probably the quietest I'd seen De Bruyne play in ages. David Silva was off it. Sane wasn't great. Aguero wasn't great. The fact that they've gone through this process and won, not for the first time this season, but for maybe just the second time this season, does suggest that, one, they have other ways of winning games beyond the sort of classic Guardiola way. And... Two, that that should further reinforce their confidence going into the winter. I mean, phenomenally impressive. Played 13, won 12, drawn one. Goal difference of plus 34. They're eight points clear. When you take into account the goal difference and a 12-goal advantage they've already got over Manchester United, it does look like nine points. Jack, um, <laughs> what else is there to say about, about City apart from the fact that they look like champions already? I think I just saw a stat that the last six seasons... The team that was top of the league after 13 games has won it in five of those seasons. The only team that didn't was uh, was Arsenal, who were top of a couple of years ago, and Man City overtook them. Um, presumably, you can't see anyone doing that. No, I agree with Jack. I think that the fact that they've won ugly, so to say, is maybe one of the most important wins of the season because it's shown the players that they can win without playing the Guardiola-style football. Uh, when their backs are up against the wall, where they're struggling to break down teams, where they're not p playing particularly well, they ki they can still get through these games. Um, and I think that is why it's going to be difficult now. Um, maybe Man City of last season may have even lost that game. Certainly would have drawn it. I couldn't yeah, have seen yeah. them winning it. I think that shows how much they've come on in the past 12 months. I realise, um, just referring to either of you as Jack, is a completely pointless thing in an audio medium. 
um, because no one can see me turning my head. But uh, you touch on the point about winning ugly there. And I think actually that brings me on to another Sunday game that I want to talk about because Arsenal's revival has kind of gone unnoticed um, a little bit. I know uh, Jack Pitbrook, to use your full name, uh, that you've seen a bit of Arsenal in recent weeks. Um, we obviously heard a lot about Arsenal Tottenham and, and that win because it was a surprise really you know I, I think people didn't expect them to do what they did to Tottenham uh, and then even after that there was the expectation that okay well it'd be classic Arsenal to beat their rivals in such convincing fashion and then go to Burnley and lose they came pretty close to not winning that game um, they get a late late winner somewhat controversially uh, with a controversial penalty Alexis Sanchez tucks that home Arsenal now in the top four I mean they're not clear of, of Spurs, only one point clear of Spurs, two ahead of Liverpool, three ahead of Burnley, who you know could have leapfrogged them amazingly into, into the top four if they'd won that game. So having seen a lot of Arsenal, do you think that they've just changed something to... to is this a Wenger thing where he's kind of slightly reinvented them or is this just a, you know, a fortunate run of results? I'm not sure they've been reinvented. Um... I, certain, I wonder if a turning point might have been the Watford game where they went to Vicarage Road and were turned over. Mm. Um, because since then, they've, won, they've had five league games. They've won four of them. The only one they lost was Manchester City away, which is obviously the hardest game of the season. And they played pretty well. I, I often think with Arsenal that it's more the variations that happen in their form are more to do with the players than the manager. Because right. the management basically stays consistent. It's more to do with when, when the senior players you know, take some responsibility rather than when they don't. That was certainly the case in the Tottenham game, which must have been their best performance for a year or two. And the strongest 11 we've seen from them. That's yeah. what I thought. I remember seeing the 11 come out and thinking that was a... Yeah, I think they have us in the first half of the season or the first few weeks of the season, I think you weren't really sure what the best team is. Whereas they now know that it is... I mean, Ozil was missing yesterday, but it, the, the best front three is Ozil, Sanchez and Lacazette with Jacques and Ramsey in the middle. And they do seem to have... They've got, well, they've got the stability and experience in defence now, the now their best defenders are back. Mustafi, who there were big question marks over his well, future in the summer. Him, yeah, honest. they did try and sell him to winter. Uh, he's actually playing pretty well now. Um, and they do seem to... I mean, they, yeah, they, they look solid. You wouldn't say that they're, they're never going to play the level of attacking football that City or Liverpool, or even on their day, Tottenham are going to. But they do have a lot of experience, a lot of solidity. There's not much by way of like destructive politics or anything going on there in the way that you know might rear its head again at Chelsea or Manchester mm. United or wherever. So I think you can, f and you know, I'm having written them off at the start of the season and saying they were going to finish sixth or battling with Everton for seventh. You can now quite plausibly see them coming fourth, not least because Tottenham's league form is tanking, and you never really know what to expect from Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, it's still pretty tightly bunched there, I guess, just two points separating those three teams that you've just mentioned. Uh, Everton not quite in, in the picture as we thought they might be. Um, the defence thing's interesting. The Koscielny, Monreal and Mustafi, the five games they played together this season, Arsenal yet to concede a goal uh, and they scored eight. Is it just maybe, like you say, they're not going to be an explosive team, but this could be a team that if they get the defence right, is if, if they can build a solid defense, that, uh, defense. I sounded very American. Sorry about that. Uh, if they can build a solid defense, then they're going to be a team that can win games one nil and, and two nil. Yeah, they can be. Um, I think if you look at the end of last season, that was when their defense started 
looking a bit better when they started playing three at the back with the two wing backs. And that coincided with an upturn in form, um, which obviously ultimately wasn't enough to get the Champions League, but they did. They were playing well and they were getting better results. Um, so I think if they can build from that defence, then certainly that is the you always start from the base. Um, I think for Arsenal, though, I'm not sure whether this is a revival. I think we've seen it too many times where they go through a run of bad results with the Wenger out mob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden they grind out a few results and then it's like, oh, maybe maybe it is okay. Your boy Aaron Ramsey's playing well, though, is he? He is, he is, yeah. Uh, you know, always said he was better than no, Jack no, Washer. <laughs> I've always liked Aaron Ramsey. There's, there's a weird dynamic with him and the fans, right? Isn't it? Like, yeah, he's, I think Ramsey's a brilliant player. I think he's... Actually, I think he would. If he played for any of the other tops of the top six teams, he would be established as one of the best midfielders in the country, um, because I think they would all play to his strengths better. But you can tell for Wales how good he is. Uh, he's so incisive. He makes brilliant runs. He's a great finisher. He's got a really good instinctive understanding of the game. Um, he's yeah. He he is a much he is he is a much better player than Wilshere. He has played much better for Arsenal consistently than Wilshere. Obviously, Wilshire's had injuries, but, you know, Ramsey's had his share of injuries as well. Um, so, yeah, I've always been a huge fan of Ramsey. I was a bit frustrated, or I have got a bit frustrated when I think he's been shunted out onto the right, like he was for a lot when Arsenal were playing 4-2-3-1, or when they were, he was having to play a bit too deep. The problem he's really had is that he wants to play, well, he wants to play like a sort of Steven Gerrard-type role, like an attacking box-to-box midfielder with not too much defensive responsibilities. But the problem is that Arsenal have got well, they got Santi Cazorla. Well, they did have Santi Cazorla to play in the middle. They have Özil to play as a number ten, and so he doesn't really have that room to do that. Whereas if he was at another team, you know, like I always think he'd be brilliant playing for Liverpool, for example, or even Manchester United, like a team that doesn't really play with a ten in the same way. Yeah, he could be deadly. I mean, I'm looking at this league table now. It is interestingly bunched actually. Chelsea only a point ahead of Arsenal. Tottenham one point behind. Liverpool two points behind. Then you've got Burnley and Watford. And then there's a five-point chasm to the bottom 11 teams. Um, Everton, we thought, would be there, but were were utterly humiliated by Southampton yesterday. What do we make of uh, what on earth is going on at Goodison Park? Where to start? Um, I think Unsworth probably said the most correct thing that he said since taking the job after the game where, well, being given the interim job, is that they need to make a decision on the manager. It's been, I think, 35 days now, 36 days since Koeman was sacked. And they're no closer to hiring a manager than they were the day they sacked him. If anything, they're further away because they've lost some of their targets. Well, yeah, it's, it's dangerous as well when you when you go for a guy and you miss out because it, you know, unfor- like managers are egotistical beings, a lot of them. And when someone realises they're not first choice, and I think this happened with Allardyce, they just they lose interest. Um, Jack, you've been fairly sw- fairly handily across the uh, Everton managerial situation, it's specifically their search for Marco Silva, trying to get him out of the Watford contract. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Where do you think they go now? I don't know, honestly. Um, I think that they, I think they need, I think they need to get someone because that it's not, obvious that Unsworth can keep them up. They need a change of impetus for sure. Yes. Right? They need something. So they need someone to the end of the season. Yeah. Um, I think the problem is that, you know, it's very difficult to get a good manager at the midpoint of the season. You know, Liverpool were lucky that they can get Jurgen Klopp in uh, in October when they did a few years ago. But generally speaking, you're not going to get anyone of the sort of calibre that Everton want at this stage in the year. So I wouldn't be surprised if they end up having to go for someone like, you know, maybe 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 they they can go back to Sam Allardyce as a temporary measure until the summer and then take it from there in the summer. I think they probably will go back for Silva at the end of the season. I don't think that one's over. I think that Silva will have, I imagine that Silva will have other better offers. Uh, he doesn't have a release clause, but I think there is a sort of informal gentleman's agreement with Watford that he could leave if, you know, for a good compensation offer at the end of the season, but they just resolutely refused to accept him leaving during the season. Um, so, may, so maybe they can get it sorted in the summer. But clearly, the problem is that they sacked Kuman. They sacked Kuman thinking that another manager could get them into into you know the, a higher a higher league position this year without realizing, well, without having a specific manager in mind to to get them there. And now they're looking for another sort of manager, the sort the sort of manager who can keep them in the prem. It baffles me. So it's been a, it's been a complete disaster of bad decision making. I just don't get it. If you're going to sack a manager, you've got to at least. I mean, you know, everyone knows tapping up occurs and, and, and informal contact can be made via certain people. Um, I just don't understand why you bin your manager without having already perhaps gauged the interest of a couple of people and, and knowing that you had a realistic chance of getting them as well. That's the key because, you know, it's all very well to go in and tap up a player. If the club's not willing to sell him, the club's not willing to sell him. I think some very big Premier League clubs found that out in the summer. But for for Everton to have not, well, certainly it doesn't seem that they had gauged the interest of many of these potential candidates. It, it's just really, really bizarre. And, you know, they're now two points clear relegation zone. But the the weight on them is dragging them downwards big time. You've got a huge disconnect coming with the, with the fans now where they... This is the first real test for Mashiri. You know, he went out and spent loads of money in the summer, I guess. Um, spent it badly. Yes, he, yeah, and, he, and, he, and he did. It does look like that. So he's gone out and spent all this money on uh, a lot of very similar players, uh, which is, uh, I seem to remember just in pre-season, we were asking how on earth they all fit in because they all kind of play in the same area of the field. So his big test, his first big test, and we talked about West Brom, I think, last week, and we said it's the first test for the Chinese owners and, and who they hire. And they basically left it to Nicky Hammond, who is an experienced operator in English football and he's obviously got a guy in mind um, or some guys in mind that he wants to speak to and he wants Premier League experience. Everton didn't seem to have any sort of direction in their managerial search and, and they're going to suffer for it. I, I know they got battered yesterday. Just a quick word for, on, on Southampton, Jack, who 
Yeah, they look they great. They had a bad start under Pellegrino, really. They have. Um, but they're now, yeah, they're back up in the top half again and they'll be chasing that top eight, I think. Well, yeah, well, Pellegrino was one that a few clubs wanted in the summer. Um, but it almost looked like they'd taken a backward step in at the start when they sacked uh, Claude Puel. But um, no, now they are looking a lot better. Um, like 4-1 against Everton, as bad as Everton are, that can't be understated how good a win that was. Um, Charlie Austin scored two brilliant headers. Um, they were just, they were dominant. Um, it, it took a spectacular goal from uh, Sigurdsson to, for them to concede. Uh, I just the, think the way that went in off the woodwork, oh, just two, two cross, yeah, yeah, no, the crossbar twice. That's double points. But um, no, they were they were fantastic yesterday. Van Dijk looks like he's getting back to somewhere near his best, which obviously maybe good or bad depending on Liverpool's interest. But um, no, they they look like they're they're improving, and they needed to because they started very poorly, as you said. It's a it's a interesting cluster of teams as they from ninth down. Brighton uh, unbelievably up in ninth. Uh, but by no means are they safe from relegation. They're just six points clear. So eight points separates ninth and 20th. Uh, Brighton and Crystal Palace, who in fact play on Tuesday in, in the week's big game. Um, I watched Palace Stoke. I, I watched Man United, Brighton and, and Palace Stoke on Saturday. And Palace got last minute winner. Uh, a game they probably didn't deserve to win. Uh, but it did highlight, you know, Palace had the worst start to the Premier League season of of any team I think ever, right? It yeah. was seven games without a win and without scoring even. Palace are three points off safety now. Uh, to even think about staying up with the start they had it is is ridiculous. Swansea are right in the mix. West Ham, we, we've discussed how they've already rolled the dice um, and I've got a feeling they might roll it again before the end of the season. West Brom are there again. They've sacked Tony Pulis. Everton, currently in some sort of rudderless veering. Stoke, Mark Hughes is under pressure. And then you've got Newcastle where, where Rafa isn't under pressure, but the club is for sale and there's a bit of a how would you describe it, Jack? It's a bit of a curious situation at St. James's Park. Yeah, I think it always is when you've got this this kind of hu- huge changes going on in the background or certainly on their way. And it means that, you know, it suddenly means that no one is that can be too sure of his position of how much money they're going to have, you know, people are going to. This is when agents start talking and people start wondering where they're going to be next season, and it doesn't make for a very. I mean, it, it never, it never makes for a sort of healthy backdrop. Well, Rafa always wants players as well. Rafa always wants players. Yeah, and if if you're in a situation in January where they are at the moment four points above the drop, if they're you know between two and and five points above the relegation zone, he's going to want players. He didn't get the ones necessarily he wanted in the summer. And it might be a situation where they just can't buy because of the, the takeover. Yeah, and the whole takeover, you know, the whole takeover thing has kind of taken away from the big, or the big story at the start of the season, which was Benitez's fury with the lack of money spent in the summer. You know, it is, they have made nowhere near as many improvements to the squad as they were help, hoping to. And, so, you know, they have won so, the first few weeks of the season. They did do pretty well and won a few games, but... You get the impression that after a few defeats on the bounce, it's starting to catch up with them, and January can't arrive soon enough. And then you've got Bournemouth, Leicester, Huddersfield, Southampton, Brighton, just there as well. And they're all within reach of, uh, of the relegation zone. Any team that has a bad run will be dragged into it. Um, I've got to look at it, Jack. And, uh, you, you can't really say which three teams at the moment you think will go down. No, I've got a feeling it's going to turn into almost uh, like the end of the season in the championship where a team has a good three or four or five results in a row and all of a sudden they find themselves in the playoffs. Whoever hires Pulis, probably. 
Maybe. It could, it, I mean, it could be a, a really like a record low points total to stay up this season. It could be someone stays up on on 36 points. It's starting to look like that. But I, I wonder if I wonder if this is going to become a, a trend with the, the top clubs obviously are, are significantly richer now. Yeah. Um, that gap does seem to be widening, and uh, and it sounds stupid to say that with with Burnley and Watford kind of mingling there, but they're not probably going to be able to keep pace for the entire season. So do we think that this is something we're going to have to get used to, kind of a, six teams, probably a, a bit of a gap, and then the bottom ten, just kind of a homogenous group that, that mingles? Yeah, it's what, I mean, it's what makes the Leicester City winning the title story even more surprising is that the, the, you know, the broader trend of the Premier League is that the top six are moving further and further away from the other 14. Um, it means that you know, it's harder and harder to catch up with them and teams that have got the money and the ambition, like Everton, basically have to get everything right to to break in there. And, you know, if they had done that, you could see them maybe picking off Liverpool or Arsenal. But clearly the evidence this season is they've got everything wrong. And therefore it's going to be, it's almost, you know, it's inconceivable now that they could form any part of a big seven, which I'm sure would have to be the first step in any kind of Everton project going forward. Um, but yeah, that is very much, that is very much the case. Um, and it's difficult to see what kind of circumstances could change that or could 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 take us away from this kind of big big six era we now seem to be in. What sort of circumstances? Uh, Sean Dyche, Burnley are up in seventh place. Everton need impetus. Sean Dyche cannot get a job anywhere, it seems. Overlooked by Crystal Palace in the summer. Overlooked uh, by West Brom in this process. Overlooked by pretty much everyone. Um do you know any reason why Sean Dyche can't get a major job, or not even a major job, just a, a job at a wealthier club, a club with greater resources than where he is currently working? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think Sean Dyche has a reputation, which I think is probably fair, that he is a very good manager of bad players. Uh, his success at Burnley has not been based on you know, transfers or anything. It's been based on brilliant, meticulous coaching getting a group of fairly unremarkable individuals to work as a very, very effective unit in this very compact 4-4-2 system, uh, maximising the opportunities from set pieces and, and everything. And people all, you know, it, this is a big debate in the stats community. And Rory Smith wrote a brilliant piece in the New York Times about it the other day. And there is a view, I think, that Burnley are just lucky and that the stats, the stats show that eventually they'll fall back down to earth. So clearly, they are they are seriously overperforming. Um, now, I think that that reputation that Dyche has is probably why he isn't in the mix for, say, uh, or is why Everton might have had second thoughts about appointing him. It's why I don't think he would ever be in the mix for Tottenham or Arsenal. But like you say, why would he not be? Why would he not be a candidate for Crystal Palace? Like it, it seems obvious looking back on it that if Palace had gone for Dyche rather than De Boer in the summer they would now be doing much better, you know, because not least, I mean, the Palace would get the benefit of a manager who is good at working in that kind of athletic British 4-4-2 yep. system. Yep. And the players would get, pro you know, behind Sam Allardyce himself, arguably the best coach at playing that kind of football. So it would have been a much better fit. Um, and it seems to me, I mean, if I were, if I were West Brom, for example, or Palace, if Hodgson were to leave at the end of the season, or another team with that kind of profile of squad, Daesh would, would be certainly the first person I turn to. 
Yeah, I don't know. Even looking at like Leicester, you know, when they had the vacancy after Shakespeare went, it was a bizarre one for me that they didn't really seem to consider Dyche that thoroughly. But if you if you were Sean Dyche, Jack, what sort of club would you be targeting next, knowing that there is some sort of inherent bias against him? That's a difficult question because he's... I think realistically, although Everton aren't seventh best club at the moment, they are the seventh biggest club and that's what he has to be aiming for, whether he'll actually get that or not. Do you think he'd get a job at somewhere like Newcastle? I, th- I think he could. I, th- I think I think Newcastle is... The s- it, whether he'd take it, though, again, it would be the other question because at the moment he's got this club with one holistic view where you know he gets on with the owners there's no controversy in there they're just all working towards a common goal so whether he'd consider going into the chaos of a Newcastle I'm not sure but that's the sort of stature of club that he should be aiming for and probably will be aiming for I just realized we we've gone through the entire show so far without mentioning probably the game's biggest the weekend's biggest game Liverpool Chelsea Jack uh, I know you saw that one Give us a couple of uh, a couple of big takeaways from that one. I mean, from what I saw, and I, I didn't get to see the whole game, but I saw most of it. Eden Hazard was on a on a different level to anything I've seen. Yeah, he was fantastic. Yeah, he was fantastic. He um, there was one one turn that he did in the first half just to take himself away from three Liverpool players, which is just stunning. Um, he was yeah, he was fantastic. But um, Liverpool, I would say, were the better team for the first half certainly, um, and then the second half, Chelsea. It was a very even game. Uh, I think the draw was the probably the correct result, um, but it was certainly all Hazard for Chelsea and all Salah for Liverpool. I was very impressed with Salah again. I, I think um, when when Hazard and Morata link up well, uh, and I remember seeing it at Atletico Madrid uh, for sure. They, I mean, when those two play together and play well, Chelsea are a completely different team. They re- they're they're a really really tough team to play against. And basically, if those two aren't firing, I, I think they look a bit one-dimensional at the moment. I think they got inhibited by the team selection as well without that creative central midfielder. They had Bakayoko, Kante and Drinkwater in there. He's still settling in a bit, Bakayoko, isn't he? Yeah. I, he has a, the odd good game, but I've seen him having stinkers as well. Yeah, he he wasn't. he's not the link between midfield and attack that they get from Fabregas. And I think, especially in the first half, you could see that, that there was a lot of pressure on Hazard to be that link, which left Morata very isolated. In the second half, when Fabregas came on, that link was a bit more well-gelled well um, and they did get a bit more attacking influence and, as you saw, they scored the goal, whether he meant it, uh, meant it or not. But, um, yeah. Willian's a good... Uh, Willian also underused, I think, by Conte. Well, we thought when he came on, could you name another club where he wouldn't be starting? Well, I think Manchester United wanted him, didn't they, in the summer? I, I think he, he would work very well... At United, he's a Mourinho yeah. player, and it, and if he's not wanted at, at Chelsea, then it would make sense almost for most parties. I think they might have a bit of a fear after selling Matic to to United, though. Uh, we should just look ahead quickly to the the midweek games because we've got a full slate this week. Jack, what game are you at this week? I'm at Arsenal Huddersfield, which I'm really um, I'm really looking forward to now that I know now that I know, now that Arsenal have improved their form. And after seeing Huddersfield do so well against City, I mean, if Huddersfield can play like that on Wednesday, then they'll give Arsenal Arsenal a difficult challenge. I think they'll be similarly. Do you think they'll, they'll go with the same strategy 
away at Arsenal as he did at home to Manchester City. Do you think that's an equivalent sort I th- of? I think so. Yeah. I mean, obviously Arsenal aren't as good as City, but they do. Like the basic idea is probably similar. Uh, and given that Huddersfield have looked to me to be quite good at playing that kind of way. I think it would make most sense for them to do it. I've actually, I'm, I've just realised I made a mistake earlier on the podcast. I said that I hadn't hit, seen Huddersfield earlier this season. I you had, lied. in fact. You lied. I saw them lose 2-0 at the London Stadium to Slaven Bilic's West Ham, oh, which takes some doing. And they were absolutely appalling that day. Right? They didn't offer anything that in was the a Friday fact. night. Um, Monday night. I think it was a Monday night. Right. Uh, it was definitely an evening. They were, you know, they were useless. They offered nothing in attack. They defended badly. They conceded soft goals. They never really got on the ball because they were trying to play more. They weren't trying to defend. They were trying to play more expansively, but they were doing it very badly. And after then, I kind of presumed that they would go down. And that's why yesterday's performance was so impressive to me was because it was they were so so much better in everything they did than they were in that game at the London Stadium. Um, so you, I mean, you're expecting. Huddersfield to put up a good fight, you think? Yeah, yeah. I think you know. I think it might take Arsenal. It's one of those games where if Arsenal score early, then they could win four 0 But if they don't, then it's going to require a lot of work for them to get through. Well, Huddersfield score enough goals this season. They've got Mounier, who I saw a couple of times, and uh, De Poitre up front. They're very like kind of the sort of ever willing but never scoring. Yeah, that's that was kind of my worry watching them yesterday. Is that De Poitre was great. He worked really hard. He gave company an awful lot of running to do. Beyond that, there's um, there's not really an awful lot of goals in the team, like you say. Um, you know, Aaron Moy's a good player, but he's not. I mean, he's probably as good as it gets for goal threat. Tom Ince runs, re- works really hard, but I don't think he scored this season. Van Lepara doesn't really produce consistent output in terms of goals and assists. Got himself sent off, and and got himself sent off, so he won't be playing on Wednesday. And so, if there's if there's anything that's going to cost them, it's it's going to be that. I'm going to be at Brighton for Brighton Palace. Uh, watched Brighton Man United uh, on Saturday. I thought they were actually pretty good. Um, they matched United virtually m- most of that game. They've got an attacking threat. You know, Pascal Gross is really good. Um, I think he was a big, big stats guy. And uh, someone I know at Brighton told me that they thought he was going to be the nuts this season. And he looks very good. Knocker is the same guy he was in the championship, the best player in the championship last season. Um, and he fizzed two balls across the face of goal, which should have been goals, but but no one on the end of them. Uh, Glenn Murray against his former club will be interesting. This is kind of, I guess, it's one of those, it's like the Premier League's rivalry that no one knows about, I guess. Um, two teams haven't met since the playoff semi-final when Wilfred Zaha scored twice to to knock out Brighton. Palace went to Wembley and, and got promoted. 2013? Uh, yes, it must have been 2013 now. Um, Palace were also the first team to beat Brighton at their new stadium uh, that was 3-1 that was Glenn Murray scoring the third goal for Palace that day so I think this is going to be I don't know if this one on TV it should be on TV but it's um, it is a big rivalry it is a sort of game that, that both clubs have to, to get up for and if Palace do win then you're looking at the league table and, and they're really climbing and Brighton could be dragged back into it so for me that's the most interesting game of the week uh, of course um, Jack, you're not doing anything this week? No, no. Week off. <laughs> week off for the big man. Um, so otherwise, I guess we'll be, we'll be around next week. Um, there is a big weekend of football coming up. What are you doing at the weekend, Jack? Um, Arsenal-Manchester United, Saturday 5.30. Arsenal-Manchester United. Apparently that's some sort of big game also. So we'll be... I think it used to be when the two teams were good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in fact, <laughs> I'm with you at that one. 
Uh, I'm with you at Arsenal Man United. Miguel Delaney uh, will not be with us because he is in Russia for the World Cup draw. So on Monday, we're going to have some high-grade post-draw deconstruction. Um, we will be anointing the group of death, the group of life. Um, we'll be talking through the bits we like, the fixtures we like, um, as well as deconstructing Arsenal Man United, of course. And uh, all the other Premier League games, as always. So, um, Jack Austin, any parting shots from you today? Uh, no parting shots. No, just uh, always, always lovely to be here. Thanks for having Honor me. Honour and a privilege to have you on, Jack Pitbrook. Thank you very much, Ed. No, thank you. Look forward to uh, doing Arsenal United with you on Saturday. Producer Matt Murphy hasn't got a microphone today, just nodding along. Um, looks a bit tired. Uh, so, with that, we will depart. Thank you to Matt. Thank you to our friends at ACAST, the podcast providers. Thank you to our friends at Apple. Remember to go to iTunes, leave a review. Uh, if it's not five-star, then don't bother. And uh, I've been Ed Malian. This has been the Indie Football Podcast. Thank you and goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.